It is January 10th, 2022, and it is five o'clock in Salford. How are you doing? Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. Sure, it's only great to be with you. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Well, I hope you had a lovely Christmas festive period and a happy new year. Happy new year to you. It's the last time I'll say that. It's the BBG then back on the Richie Allen Show. Monday to Thursday at 5 o'clock. I'm thrilled to be back. Had a lovely break. I did the Sunday thing yesterday, but many of you don't do the Sunday thing with me. So here we are. I've got a great guest lined up for you today. She is none other than Nurse Jenny Lowe's. Wonderful lady. Hasn't been on the programme for about 10 months. She's in Portugal. She has worked as an NHS nurse. She recruited nurses for the NHS educated overseas nurses for the NHS and is in private practice in Portugal. She's a very learned and very articulate woman and it's great to be welcoming her back to the programme today. So it is. Asher, I'm alright. How are you? You can comment on the programme by going to richieallen.co.uk and comment live on the menu bar. Do I sound a bit heavy, do I? It's because I've been battling the lurgy the stinking head cold and chest. I've got a chest infection. I'm coughing things up. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. It is dinner time after all. But I'm okay. I'm feeling really good. It's just I'm full up of mucus and slime and all of that. Speaking of slime, give Ghostbusters Afterlife a serious miss. What a pile of piss that film is. I'll never get that two hours back again. Absolute crap. Crapola. But, on a lighter note, the missus and myself sat down to watch Kenneth Branagh's film Belfast over the weekend, and we thoroughly enjoyed that. Semi-autobiographical film, Kenneth Branagh, of course, from Belfast. It's about a young boy in 1969, growing up in the Troubles, and navigating his way through life, this little lad who's played by an outstanding young child actor. So check that one out, but give Ghostbusters Afterlife a severe miss. Jesus, I hope they murdered the director of that after it was premiered, premiered. Now, let's chat to you and me for the next while. I've got some terrific guests booked in, people like Celeste Solemn will be on the programme this week. I'm catching up with people we haven't heard for from even for some time. So it's going to be a good old week. And I will be doing a phone-in because I want to hear your thoughts on one subject and one subject only. I'll be dictating it. Ordinarily, you get to tell me what you want to tell me. But I want to talk about where this goes next in the next five or six months. I want your opinions on that. We'll do that in the week, probably Wednesday haven't decided yet because, well, I just haven't decided yet. All right. I'm delighted today because just before coming on air, the missus gave me a little present. Don't be rude. No, she gave me an LP. I played a song from from Steve Harley 
on the Sunday show yesterday. It's from a Steve Harley album from 2020 called Uncovered, which I've been listening to on my streaming service. And didn't a big-hearted future Mrs. A, El Frogo Tremendo, hand me a copy, a vinyl, today? And she said, welcome back to work there, BBG. Fantastic. So I'm in good form. I'm in fine form just because of that as well. 2022 then, we're living in years that were unimaginable when we were children back in the 80s. At least I'm a child of the 80s, grew up in the 80s. The things we believed would be possible in 2022 when we watched the science fiction films, films, the things we believed we would be doing in the 2020s, flying cars, homes on the moon, colonies on Mars, time travel, they haven't cracked that one yet, or have they? Maybe they have. Welcome to the Richie Allen Show. IKEA is in the news. The big old horrible flat pack furniture company in Sweden. IKEA is in the news. It's not being very nice to its employees, is IKEA, particularly the unjabbed ones. I once went for a job in IKEA back in the day when I was at college. I applied for a job. I was given an interview. I went for the interview. And the manager said, welcome, Mr. Allen, come in and make a seat. Do you get it? Do you get it? Boom, boom. It's garbage, isn't it? That's the level. That's what it's going to be like in 2022. Yes. And in other news, IKEA just won't stop calling me, cold calling me. I mean, all I wanted was one nightstand. And finally, my nephew's school has become an academy and it's sponsored by IKEA. The lessons are okay, but morning assembly takes ages. Ages. Crickets. I hear the crickets there. That's crap. Okay, let's move on. It's cut sick pay for unvaccinated staff. So if you're unvaccinated and you work for IKEA and you need to self-isolate because of the COVID thing, you will not get so much sick pay from IKEA. And it isn't the only firm. Others are following hot on the heels of the Swedish furniture company. IKEA said that this was, quote, an emotive topic, end quote, but that its policy had to evolve with changing circumstances. So from this week, sick pay cuts will be implemented at, wait for it, Wessex Water. And in America, several major companies have started penalising the unjabbed workers. You see, firms are saying, we're struggling because of mass staff absences. Well, they're struggling because of mass staff absences because the Egypts keep testing themselves with lateral flow tests like proper Egypts. Oh, they're proper Egypts. So they keep applying for the tests and the tests are sent to them in the post and they take them. By the way, they get these tests for free or they think it's for free. The government is racking up bills in the billions of pounds on these lateral flow tests and the stupid Egypts that are taking them, even though they are perfectly healthy, well, they'll be paying them back in their taxes forever and ever. Amen. These people are proper clowns. Perfectly healthy. Nothing wrong with them. They take a test. It says that they're positive for something that they don't really have. And then they stay home, which is fecking up, fecking up businesses and the economy, stupid. That's what it's doing, right? We'll come back to that testing thing uh, maybe a little bit later on this hour. So at IKEA, unvaccinated workers who are required to isolate 
Mike now receive as little as 96 quid a week, which is the statutory sick pay minimum. People who work at IKEA, the average pay is between 400 and 450 pounds a week, depending on location. The Mail on Sunday uh, broke this story yesterday. Yes, yes, yes. Madness, eh? Madness. What else is is interesting right now at eight minutes past five? Uh, this made me laugh. I, I don't know why I'm, I'm mentioning this, but it just made me laugh. We talk about artificial intelligence sometimes on the programme. We talk about the singularity, the point at which machines begin to learn for themselves and make decisions for themselves and maybe kill every last one of us or not. Maybe they depart this mortal coil and search the galaxy for other worlds and civilizations. That's if you believe NASA's Rich Tyrrell, who told me that some years ago. I, I'm, I'm of the Jim Cameron school. I think they'll just kill us all. But I could be wrong. I have been known to be wrong. But if, um, if you're like me and you love your music, but you've only got a few basic chords on the guitar here, which I have, I can play a few chords, but I, I can't put them together very well, you won't be inviting me around for Saturday drinks, because Asher Ritchie can always bring his guitar. I'm not that good. I can play a few chords. I have friends who are positively geniuses with the old guitar. Paul Ripley is one. Is there anything that man can't do? Hayden Hewitt is another one, another guitar hero. Anyway, but if you have no skill like me, um, you can use an app, which is kind of powered by artificial intelligence. And the app will write you a song in the genre of your choice. This is no joke now. A man called Alex Mitchell is the founder and boss of a website and application called Boomy, which helps users create their own songs using artificial intelligence software that does most of the bloody work. Does most of it. So you choose your genre. What would I choose? Stadium rock, I suppose. I know I'm a boring backstart. Stadium rock, right? You click create song and the artificial intelligence will compose a song for you in 30 seconds. It picks the track, uh, the, key, the key of the track, the chords, the melody, and then you can finesse it then by taking out instruments, changing the tempo a little bit, adding echoes and all the rest of it. I'm going to try this for the crack. I'm not endorsing it. I think it's terrible. I think it's horrible and dystopian. But I'm going to try it because I, as horribly Orwellian as it is to be creating songs using artificial intelligence programs, I bet you your, your, your app will come up with better music than that grime shit that they play on Radio 1 or that drill shit. You know that music, grime and drill. I mean, it's so bad, it's untrue. It's so bad, you often think when you ac- accidentally click onto Radio 1 that that you're the, the subject or the victim of a practical joke. You think, I can't, this, this can't be true, this. It's so bad. I'm not down with the kids, but anyway. Yeah, five million songs created by this thing. I, I might try and create an anti-vaccine song. That's what I'll do with anti-vaccine lyrics. We'll see. Even though... I shouldn't really be describing myself as an anti-vaxxer. Here's one that was in the Times, Sunday Times yesterday, which is important if you're a woman and you might end up in prison. The way things are going, we might all be in prison. Um, Female prison officers in Scotland have revealed they're pretty uncomfortable 
at being forced to search transgender prisoners who still have their meat and two veg. Now, they've been told to do this, female prison officers, without consultation. So a bloke who identifies as a woman runs out of boots carrying a big load of razor blades because razor blades are expensive and he's done it 15 times. He identifies as a woman. He goes to a female prison and female prison officers are told that you've got to get up close and personal to search the transgender woman before he is given a cell, presumably his, his, his bedding, his bedding. And female prison officers are saying, well, we weren't consulted on this and we're not too happy. This is known because a group called Keep Prisons Single Sex have been screaming from the rooftops about it. They got a raft of information through a freedom of information request and they're not happy at all. Yes. There we are. We'll leave that one there. Maybe this will be the year, maybe. No, no, maybe it won't be. Yeah, so they interviewed lots of prisoners and, and, and this is going on, and prison officers. We'll leave that one there, shall we? Pope Francis has condemned baseless ide- ideological information. Let me start that one again. Pope Francis has condemned baseless ideological misinformation about COVID jabs. He backs national immunisation campaigns. He said that healthcare is a moral obligation. So did the Pope. This was at a yearly address, his yearly address to the diplomatic corps, which is accredited to the Vatican. It's sometimes called his state of the world address because he basically has a bit of a conflab about the global situation. So he had a good go at the COVID thing. So he got stuck into the uh, anti-vaxxers and the misinformation. He said, sadly, we are finding increasingly that we live in a world of strong ideological divides. Frequently, people let themselves be influenced by the, by the ideology of the moment, often bolstered by baseless misinformation or poorly documented facts. He said, vaccines are not a magical means of healing, yet surely they represent, in addition to other treatments that need to be developed, they represent the most reasonable solution for the prevention of the disease. It's a moral obligation. Is health care, said the pontiff. I lost all interest in popes myself after John Paul II died. He was the daddy when it comes to popes. By the way, if you happen to know a 42 or a 43-year-old Irish man, there is a one in three chance that his name is John Paul because mammies in Ireland went mental over Pope John Paul II. When he visited Ireland in 1979, they went mad. Mad they went. I was born in 1974. So I was. So I was. But I did a lot of... uh, When I was in my late teens... I did a lot of uh, schoolboy coaching, coaching soccer to schoolboys. And I looked after a team of under-14s. Most of them had been born in 1979. I had about five John Pauls in the squad. I just dropped them all. But yeah, that's true. John Paul, it was a big deal. Right, let's talk a little bit about the COVID before we do that, though. Because it's my first day back. And because, dear listener, because I'm struggling with the old lurgy. I'm going to take a tune. When I come back, there's so much to talk about. This is Monday's Richie Allen Show. Can you feel it? it? I said, can you feel it? 
I'm Richie Allen, the BBG, the most listened to independent news radio show in the world. This is the Jacksons and Can You Feel It? I love this tune. You can talk to me through the website, richieallen.co.uk. Comment live is on the menu bar. Drop me a comment, say hello, and I'll say hello back to ya. Ah, the Jacksons, and can you feel it? Love that, love a bit of disco. Kind of disco, that, isn't it? Yes, there are one or two problems with the website. It is being hammered by people. It's my first day back since Christmas, and that's understandable. Hayden is working on it, and it'll be up and running again in a few minutes' time. It's the traffic, you see. It's the traffic. Let's talk a little bit about the Republic of Ireland. My country, God's country. And we'll talk about Neffet, the National Public Health Emergency Team. Neffet is the Irish equivalent of the UK Stage Committee. It advises the government on how to negotiate its way through the COVID minefield. Well, Neffet, believe it or not, has, 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 it, has, has admitted, or it has been found, that Neffet is considering mandatory vaccination for Irish people. They are preparing a new paper, a new paper on the legal and ethical aspects of mandating the jabs. So last week, the Chief Medical Officer, Tony Houlihan, wrote to the government and said that Ireland hadn't yet reached the peak of the Omicron wave. He said, and Neffet says, Neffet says, that all current measures, such as the early closing times for pubs and restaurants and indoor events, that those early closing times should remain in place until the end of January. This is crazy. There is nothing happening, well, nothing ever happened, to justify any lockdown or any measures, we know that. But certainly nothing now is happening in Ireland to justify this. But the torture continues in my country, in my homeland. It's crazy. And minutes of a meeting of Neffet on December 16th revealed that um, they'll be considering mandatory vaccination. Who are these people? Where do you get the balls to sit around and imagine that you retain or you possess the right to tell somebody they've got to take some medicine that you've got for them? The arrogance of these people. Who the hell are they? Well, they'll be advising the government and they'll be thinking, thinking, they'll be thinking, they'll be thinking about mandatory jabs and will be recommending which way to approach that subject in a paper with the Department of Health involved as well. Ah, sure, it's crazy stuff, isn't it? Professor Karina Butler of Ireland's National Immunisation Office was speaking to RTE this morning. That's the national broadcaster... And she had this to say, did Professor Butler like? I think this is something that really has to be thought about. There are pros and cons to mandatory vaccination. There are other situations where we want people to be fully vaccinated, for example, with hepatitis B, if they're a healthcare worker, and if they're doing procedures that might put either them or their patients at risk. But I know this has been looked at by uh, the department and a paper has been done on that, and careful consideration will be given to it. It's always preferable 
if people can look at vaccinations, have the information and be able to make an informed decisions for themselves and get it. But there can be situations where making a vaccine a requirement is necessary for the overall good. But that's been looked at at the moment. Looked at at the moment. Now, the presenter, a woman called Claire Byrne, then asks Butler, the professor, if she's comfortable rolling the jabs out to children in spite of the fact that COVID doesn't really affect children at all, you will hear the presenter ask the question, then you'll hear Butler again. That, it's quite rare though, isn't it? I know Lucy Jessup, who's the from, from your own uh, yeah. organisation, isn't she, from the National Immunisation Office, told Katie Hannan that 200 children were hospitalised with COVID-19 in the past two years and just 12 of those children ended up in intensive care. Do you, what, what do you think parents need to hear in order to reassure them that it is necessary? Do you? <laughs> I love this. The presenter says, it doesn't do anything to children. We only had a handful of children in two years end up in intensive care. So what the feck do we need to say to parents <laughs> to get them to bring forward the kiddies to be jabbed? I just make anything up. Just say if they don't have the jabs that their heads could fall off. It's absolutely mad, isn't it? You believe it is necessary for all children to be vaccinated? I, well, do you? I believe that every child can benefit, or almost every child can benefit from the vaccine um, for themselves directly in terms of preventing COVID itself, COVID infection, preventing that smaller risk of hospitalisation, but that real risk, and it is preventable, of ending up in ICU uh, with COVID or COVID-related condition. And, okay, those numbers are relatively small in that... That daft bitch was just told by the presenter only seconds ago that a handful of children ended up in intensive care in two years. That absolute cretin was told, unequivocally, doesn't do anything to children... Then she's asked, are you in favour of giving all of the kids the jabs? Yes, yes, because some children end up in ICU. Mm. That's too, it's too simplistic to talk about money, isn't it, and bribes. But you have to wonder, you know. Time, but we know that the numbers of infections in our children now have escalated much, much more, such that the test positivity rate last week was 50% in children in that age group. Yes, but none of those children are sick. You keep testing them over and over again until you get the answer you want, which is you get a positive case. But there's nothing wrong with those children. They're not blowing their nose. They've not got snots running down their chin. They're not coughing. There's nothing wrong with them, woman, you know? So even though it's a small risk, when you have so many children being infected, well, then the number is going to be substantial. And we know, for example, in the UK, when they looked at it, even in that lower risk time for children, there were children who ended up in the ICU and who died, some of them related to that condition. Now, the numbers were small. There were 29 children in that. Some of them died, she said. As far as I understand it, the government in this country has claimed that one child died of COVID-19 throughout the, the scam. Am I right? I, I stand to be corrected and I'm quite happy to correct myself. But isn't it the case they, they've claimed that one healthy child, excuse me, because God love them, there are children born with, with um, problems. 
There are children with comorbidities. There are children born and they have problems, defects. They have problems with their lungs, you know, uh, breathing problems, congenital problems, heart problems. But as far as I understand it, only one perfectly healthy child has, has been added to the COVID death ranks. And that's bollocks because it's obviously COVID. COVID is listed as a cause of death once somebody dies within 28 days of testing positive for COVID. So it's all nonsense anyway. Dangerous these people, aren't they? Dangerous. Initial study, but 29 children from a preventable disease. 29 out of tens of millions. Is 29 children too many if we can prevent it? She's mad, isn't she? That's Karina Butler from the National Immunisation Office speaking to RTE. She can't wait to jab the kiddies. She's a mad woman. Back to the mandating of the jabs. We'll stay with Ireland momentarily. Shane Coleman presents a radio show for News Talk, which is an Irish station. It's a national station. He's interviewing Jonathan Healy, who I think is a businessman, but he also works for News Talk. They're discussing the mandating. The first person you will hear is Jonathan Healy. He makes the point that, well, Neffet can discuss mandating it all they want, it's kind of already mandated, isn't it? And one could argue that it's already mandatory in many ways because you can't get on a plane unless you're doubly vaccinated. You can't go into a restaurant and sit down and have a meal or go into a pub and sit down and have a meal. In theory, uh, if you haven't got your vaccination cert. So I, I don't know what more could be gained other than forcing a group that is already massively disaffected with this particular topic uh, to do okay. something they don't want to do. Look, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, Jonathan. Uh, and I think, look, uh, people in social media will go mad when I say this, but we also live in one of the most benign liberal democracies in the world. I just don't see it happening. You're right, we don't do mandatory particularly uh, in this country. Although there are some vaccines that have been uh, proven to be uh, mandatory uh, in the past. And there will be those, Jonathan, and they've, they've been texting into 53106 saying it, who are saying, look... The, the numbers are small it's what I think it's 5.5% of the adult population that yeah. haven't had the vaccine but they are wielding a dis- disproportionately negative impact on the health service that's having a huge knock on uh, impact on those people who are trying to avail for example of cancer services they're also potentially endangering health service personnel and that in other European countries they do this they, they do have mandatory vaccines and that maybe we should uh, look at this. But, uh, look, yeah, I, I, yeah. that'll be the argument that will be made. I certainly don't think there's any problem doing up a paper on it. I think, you, sh- you know... Ah, there's no problem doing up a paper on it, no. So this is going to be the argument for mandating going forward. The argument is going to be that unjabbed people are becoming ill because they are stupid bastards. They should have had the jabs. And if they had the jabs, they wouldn't be ill. This isn't me talking. This is the argument that will be made increasingly... As time goes on, they'll say, the unjabbed are thick idiots, didn't have the jab, now they're sick. And because they're sick, they are taking up beds in hospitals. And they will use that, they will use that to continue to, to advance the discussion around mandating jabs. Not just for COVID now, dear listener. Don't think this will be exclusively about COVID. It'll be about other state-sponsored medicines in the near future. Now, I'm happy. I'm actually happy to sign a document 
This is going to sound a bit weird now because I don't play ball with these scumbags. I, I don't and I never have done in my life. I'm a contrarian with a capital C. But I'm quite happy to sign a document that says I'm barring myself from, from, from UK hospitals or, yeah, I, exempting myself. I'm happy to be banned from using the National Health Service, specifically for respiratory illnesses. I'm happy to do that and say, listen, I'll meet you halfway. You're telling me that as an unjabbed person, I'm a big problem because I might get sick and I might take up a bed that could have been given to a jabbed person. All right, you're an idiot, but I'll meet you halfway. I'll sign a document that says that whatever you mandate a jab for, which it might be for a respiratory illness, it might be a mandated jab for obesity. I'm quite happy to sign an affidavit or something like that that says whatever the jab is meant to protect me from, I'm quite happy not to be treated for that particular illness ever again by you and, and your mates in the NHS. I also won't be paying any more national insurance, by the way. I'll do my own thing. I will heal myself. Or at least I will attempt to heal myself. But that's going to be the argument, isn't it, as we move on. But mandating the old jabs was everywhere today, strangely enough. It popped up everywhere. LBC Radio's James O'Brien wanted to take it on too. Does O'Brien think that jabs for COVID should be compulsory for everyone? I guess my position that may well fall apart under scrutiny is that you should be free to refuse this vaccine. But in that case, I'm also free to tell you to sling your hook from the workplace. Does that work? Does that end up pleasing nobody as opposed to everybody? So at this point in proceedings, at this point in the conversation, and partly because of that absence of actual eradication, the problem is, am I now bending over to accommodate your Uncle Keith's Facebook page? Because, you know, social media and to an extent speech radio get slightly overwhelmed sometimes by very loud ignorance and and maybe by a process of osmosis, that loud ignorance even seeps into the most carefully curated consciences or consciousnesses. I don't know. I just... O'Brien has gone a very convoluted way there of saying that people need to be protected from misinformation, that it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how bright you are, how civic-minded you are, you are susceptible to the lies of the anti-vaxxers and Uncle Keith on Facebook. That's another one you're going to hear a lot about in 2022. What do we do about the misinformation? We already know it's the online harms bill. Find the idea. I mean, what would you do? Here's part of my problem. What would you do with someone who, who literally refused? Right, he means that once the jab has been mandated and it is now the law that you must have it and somebody refuses... What would you do? Well, O'Brien did open up his programme by acknowledging that the jabs don't stop you getting COVID. The selling point of the jabs is allegedly that they protect you against severe illness. 
Hence his point about being uncomfortable with mandating them because they don't or won't eradicate COVID. So if you mandate, what do you do to the person who refuses? Any ideas? So by all means, tell them they can't work for you anymore. By all means, O'Brien is fully behind the idea that your boss or bosses can exclude you from the workplace because you haven't taken a mandated jab. But you can't, what, strap them down? Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Bring in the army? Making suggestions here, isn't he? Have I, I, That, to me, it's a means and end argument, isn't it? it? It Would the end justify the means? And because there's no eradication on the horizon... And I am just one punter thinking out loud on this, so I, I reserve the right to completely abandon anything that I, that I put forward to you during this pontification. But because you are not going to achieve eradication, as you have with polio and smallpox among the population, any argument for actually... And I don't think there is any prospect of compulsory vaccination on the horizon for what it's worth. But but I think it's an important part of this mental framework that I'm building before you ring in and, and, and either join the dots of it or, or, or blow it to smithereens. I think that it would be utterly unreasonable to, 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 to inflict, stroke, impose this on people. But I don't think it's unreasonable to insist as with for example hepatitis b in hospitals and 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 health services i don't think it's unreasonable for employers to have a policy yes i I just don't no no journalist irrespective irregardless i love that irregardless no, no journalist 20 years ago would have dreamed of let alone said out loud on a radio show that they don't have a problem with an employer telling an employee they can't come to work unless they take government-mandated medicines. A journalist would be terrified at, at the idea that listeners or readers would associate said journalist with such remarks, with, with tyranny, effectively. But it drips off the tongue like honey these days from... UK radio presenters and television presenters. I don't think it's wrong that that people can lose their jobs because they won't have a jab, says James O'Brien. I am going to read some of your comments now in a moment because I said I would. And I'm a man of my word, I'm a man of my word, a man of my word. I have a good old drink of water now. The old throat is drying up. I'm Richie Allen. This is The Richie Allen Show. And this is Deacon Blue. It's lovely to be with you this Monday. How you doing? It's the BBG, not the BBC. Deacon Blue and Real Gone Kid on the Richie Allen Show. A big, big hello to Spiro Skouras, my great friend who's in Arizona this, this evening or this afternoon. How you doing, Spiro? You can follow Spiro on, on Twitter if you're on Twitter yourself. Look for Orwell's Ghost. Orwell's underscore ghost underscore 
and you'll find him. He's a top lad, is Spiro Skouras. He sent me a couple of very interesting clips, which he has been tweeting today, and I thank him for that. It's very good of him to do that. And to think of me, this is very important. Albert or Albert Bourla is the CEO of Pfizer. He's been speaking to the media in the last day or two, talking about jabs. Here he is talking about a future jab that will cover the Omicron variant. It'll be ready in March, he says. Uh, have a listen to him. It's a short clip, this, but it's very important. Uh, and we know that um, the, three, the two doses of the vaccine offer very limited protection, if any. The three doses with a booster, they offer reasonable protection. Against three doses offers reasonable protection. Against hospitalization and deaths. Against uh, uh, deaths, I think, very good. Um, and less protection against uh, infection. Now, we are working on a, on a new version of our vaccine, the 1.1, let me put it that way. 1.1. That uh, will cover Omicron as well. And, uh, of course, uh, we are waiting to, to have the final results. The vaccine will be ready in March. I'm sorry for sounding like Motley, Dick Dastardly's pooch, but it's because I have a chest infection that I'm wheezy. It's not that I've smoked a thousand Marlboro Red cigarettes before coming on air. In fact, I've never smoked a day in my life. Three doses offers reasonable protection, says Pfizer CEO. Thanks for that, Spiro. And there will be an Omicron jab ready in March. What a dickhead. And he also went on to say in another media interview, this guy, he talks about how Pfizer's new partnerships with gene editing companies will correct genetic mistakes in your DNA. Now, hang on now, Spiro. I know you're being very critical of this, but I like the idea of gene editing, correcting genetic mistakes in my DNA. Because I'm a big, baldy backstard with a big, baldy head in me. Be Jesus. So if Albert Bourla says, I tell you what, baldy, I've got a jab for you. We'll stick it right in your left arse cheek and you'll have a head of hair like Brian May on Wednesday. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, well, yeah. And then I go on the yellow card reporting system and I see that the Brian May hair jab is killing people. I'd still be like, well, I don't know. I, I might just take the risk. I, I'm joking, by the way. I, I don't find it that funny. Gene editing. Let's have a listen to the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Bourla. In another area that we announced today. Same interview, sorry. Uh, um, a partnership with BIM. Are there are diseases? These are diseases mainly that um, uh, uh, they have as a cause a mistake in your DNA. It's a genetic mistake. Something is wrong with your DNA, and as a result, you have a disease. Uh, what we try to do with uh, the base gene editing technology, which uh, Bean is uh, a master, uh, yeah. it is to push targets that will be delivered through mRNA that will be able to correct this mistake. There are several genetic technologies. We did a lot of due diligence, and we thought that the base, this technology base, is the best. And also we did a lot of due diligence about companies, and the best one was BIM. And this is why we, we did this partnership. We are having some other deals that we announced today that will help us to improve even further. Uh, the Acuitas, which is given us a license for 10 different targets in uh, the LNP, uh, target LNP, it is the lipid nanoparticles that are used to transfer. 
the RNA. And the last but not least, it is the codex. What codex technology is all about? If they are uh, creating DNA instead of biological manufacturing, yeah. which means that you have virus to make it, it's a synthetic. Yeah. I half expected him to finish that with more ha 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 ha. Yeah, we'll be giving you gene editing jabs in the future to correct your genetic mistakes, you mongrel. You absolute dirty dog. Thanks to Spiro Skouras for that information there. These people are mad. They're mad, I tell you. But, you know, they, they endure at the moment. It's their time, isn't it? At the moment. They're getting away with this stuff. You know, even when I was very inexperienced as a radio presenter at the very, very beginning of my career, I would have jumped all over him. What are you talking about, gene editing? Who made you God, you dickhead? Of course, I wouldn't have called him a dickhead because I would have been fired, but I would have said, who made you God? Correct what genetic mistakes? I'm beautiful as I am. Yeah. Wow. And they'll sell this stuff, of course, as they always do, by showing you people missing limbs and stuff. This is how they do it, you know. The stuff you can't argue with. Look at Mary over there. She was born blind and and she was born deaf. She lives in a prison. She lives in a sensory deprived prison because she can't see, she can't hear. All we can do is tap her on the shoulders. And they'll sell you that and you'll think, well, yeah, Jesus, give her the job. Edit the genes. Get, Get rid of that condition so that Mary's grandchildren... Of course, Mary would have to have a shag, of course. Uh, so, so her descendants won't have the, the deafness and the blindness. They'll sell it in that benign way they do. Shall I move on? I think I should. Children's masks. Now, Sanetra Gupta is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at the Department of Zoology at Oxford Uni. She's a big cheese. She's a huge cheese, don't you know? She's been writing in The Telegraph. And basically saying that there's no argument for masking children because there is no evidence that it does anything other than harm them. Does them no good whatsoever. No evidence. This is is good. Fair play to her. Fair play to her. She says the argument for masking children or obliging them to be vaccinated against a pathogen that is less likely to kill them than many others in normal circulation should have stopped at the level of logic. Rather than continuing into a debate over its ethical and political implications. Neither masks nor vaccines can reliably prevent children from passing SARS-CoV-2 onto others. She goes on to say something a bit strange. I worry for the unvaccinated grandparent in a multi-generational household who believes themselves to be protected because their grandchild is attending school with an unpleasant and environmentally unfriendly piece of material on their face. It's interesting stuff. She says there is no, no, she says there is now, there is now ample observational data to suggest that mask mandates do not work and the few formal trials that have been conducted show no credible effect. She went on to say the failure of the modelling exercises, the failing of the modelling exercises conducted by SAGE and their satellites in predicting cases and deaths allow us to reject the role of such non-pharmaceutical interventions in driving the dynamics of the spread. She says in, in 
I think, I think wonderful prose, wonderful prose in the Telegraph. She's basically saying that mere logic dictates that masking and jabbing children is foolish and potentially dangerous. Tory backbencher Miriam Cates, MP, Tory backbencher, discussed this with Julia Hartley Brewer on talk radio this morning. Let's hear a bit of Miriam Cates then, shall we? Let's do it. And I think we've started to get to the point now where common sense is winning out and we can be proud of what we've achieved. Do you think common sense is going to win out just finally when it comes to children in schools? I know you signed a letter along with a lot of MPs uh, and indeed a lot of uh, scientific and medical experts uh, calling uh, for the GCVI to look again at jabs for children. Um, I know some in Scotland now calling for jabs for five-year-olds. Again, there's simply no evidence that that, that children need these jabs whatsoever uh, in terms of the the cost-benefit ratio. But also on masks, we had the evidence published Wednesday last week of the evidence for masks in the classroom and the government's own evidence basically said there really isn't any evidence and indeed the evidence seemed to be actually arguing against children wearing masks in the classroom Nadim Sahawi said that masks would be worn only until they were necessary well the government's own evidence says they're not necessary so is it time they ended? Well, I think as much as I'm positive about the general direction, I do think there's some very serious questions we need to be asking ourselves as a society about how we treat our children, how we value our children and how we prioritise their interests. I mean, the masking classroom is a classic example of that. We've all seen the document. There is no strong evidence at all for any benefits of masks, yet we know clearly that they are damaging to children and that they really harm their education, uh, their mental health. Uh, And another example is the vaccinations. Of course, the benefits and risks are both very, very marginal but for adults we've always accepted the jcbi's advice whether or not we should push ahead with a mass vaccination program that didn't happen with children we looked at the wider benefits and now perhaps perhaps the facts have changed with omicron with uh, vaccination having less impact on transmission so it is time to look again and i think my my principal concern going forward is is looking again at how we yeah anyway we cut it there because we're rapidly running out of time this hour but effectively, she wants them to look again at the decision to jab children. Uh, good luck with that, love. I, I don't imagine they're going to look at it again. They're jabbing uh, any child they can get their hands on. This is interesting today. Look, I wrote about this on the website today. A couple of interesting things. Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp, who's German, is Jürgen Klopp. He's a successful football manager. Yeah. He was on telly yesterday because Liverpool played Shrewsbury Town in the FA Cup and won unsurprisingly so Liverpool win and after the game Klopp talked about why Liverpool's game with Arsenal due to take place last Thursday I do believe in the League Cup semi-final a different cup competition the game was cancelled you might remember this last week if you were watching the news Liverpool Arsenal in London was due to be played on Thursday but Liverpool asked the EFL, the English Football League, to postpone the game, they cited a severe COVID outbreak. That's a quote. Arsenal said, OK, we'll be sporty about it. We agree to the cancellation. And the game was rescheduled for later this week. Why is this interesting? Well, the game was postponed owing to a severe COVID outbreak. But Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, said yesterday, and I quote, We had last week a proper outbreak and it showed up that we had a lot of false positives. But the rules are like they are, so all these players who are false positives couldn't play. 
The only real positive came from Trent Alexander-Arnold and all the rest were false positives. So, we had a proper outbreak, says Klopp, and in the same breath, he said we only had one COVID case, that was Trent Alexander. All the rest were false positives. And I asked the question today on my website, and I ask it now. At what point does Jürgen Klopp and others like him begin to wonder about the legitimacy of the testing procedure, the the PCR tests? Because as it stands, professional footballers are obliged to take two PCR tests a week. And I don't have to tell you about the problems with PCR tests because you know already. This guy Klopp has basically said that jabs should be mandated from a moral point of view. He wouldn't sign an unjabbed player and he's called anti-vaxxers aggressive and dangerous. He's obviously not the brightest spark, Klopp. But why, why wouldn't it dawn on him? We had all these false positives but we had a proper outbreak. Well, you didn't. You didn't have an outbreak. Mad, right? And today, Professor Angus or Angus, Angus or Angus Dalgleish, he writes for the Daily Mail or the Mail Online. He's a leading oncologist. He teaches oncology, does this man. And he's basically called COVID testing because they're testing people up and down the country. Three, four times a week, as I said at the beginning of the programme, people are applying for these tests. They're, they're popping into pharmacies and they're getting them and taking them home and testing themselves. These are healthy people. Now, I know that some of that is based on the fact that the test is basically the key to certain activities. You know, you might need to take it to, to prove a negative test to go to a football match. You might need to show a negative test to go to a concert. I totally get that. But this guy, Angus Dalglish, says that this is madness and he said it's tantamount to self-harm. Crippled. Uh, hundreds of thousands of British businesses and it's put lives at risk due to hospital staff shortages because hospitals are seeing um, obviously big problems with staff staying at home to isolate even though there is nothing wrong with them. You have footballers testing positive for COVID and there's nothing wrong with them. They don't have a temperature, as we would say in Ireland. They don't have a fever. Nothing wrong with them. It's madness this, isn't it? And the whole bloody thing ends the minute that people say, test myself. Fuck off. Of course I'm not going to test myself. And Boris Johnson was speaking about this this afternoon. He was asked by a reporter at a jabatoire near his home, he was asked, when, when are we going to do away with these stupid lateral flow tests? I think that we'll, we'll use them as long as uh, they're, they're very important. And there's a similar argument to be, to be had about um, the, uh, the quarantine period, uh, whether to come down from, from seven days to, to five days. We're, we're looking at that and, uh, and we will uh, we'll look at, we'll, we'll, we'll act a, 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 according to the, to the science as, as we always have. But what I would say to everybody is that, you know, Omicron is, is, is still out there. It's incredibly uh, contagious. Uh, everybody will know somebody who has, who has had it. Uh, it, can be, it can be pretty unpleasant. That's a lie that I don't know anybody who has had Omicron or anything else, really. Sadly, as you know, 90% of the people who are in uh, ICU with COVID uh, have not been 
vaccinated and it's absolutely crucial that everybody gets their gets their boosted so it, it can make a, a huge huge difference. yeah 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 got two text messages over the christmas period inviting me to to show up and do my bit in the covid effort and roll up my sleeve and have a jab or a jag as they say in scotland north of the border the problem with these texts you can't reply to them and I have some wonderful replies stored up in my mind. Some funny, well, at least I think they're funny. Maybe they're not funny. Witty remarks to send back by way of saying, feck off, you know. It's exactly two minutes to the top of the hour. We will be speaking with nurse Jenny Lowe's. Terrific lady. Great value. Lovely. Was on the programme twice last year, early last year. And was great, and you asked me to have her back. Should have had her back by now. But she will be with me live from Portugal on the other side of, I don't know, whatever, on the other side of the hour, next hour, top of the next hour. Your comments are coming in thick and fast. Thanks for them. Sure, you're very kind. Thanks for participating and being an active listener. I love it. Dolores says, nothing wrong with footballers, she says, yet after the vax, they collapse on the field. Hundreds now all over Europe, says Dolores. Now, Dolores, I think you might be exaggerating slightly. Is it hundreds? Have you genuinely read reports of hundreds of footballers? I'm not saying you're wrong now. It's just I haven't seen hundreds. I've probably seen a couple of dozen reports. Yes. Cookie says my brother double jabbed, had the booster, and then tested positive. Off work, missing golf. Nothing wrong with him. He doesn't get it. Pure madness. These people are crazy, says Cookie. Cookie, you're absolutely right. How do you speak to them? How do you speak to them? What do you say to them? Alan says, I giggled yesterday at Anfield. They wanted evidence of a lateral flow test. So my mate used a lateral flow test, whizzed in the solution. Hey, presto, negative, whizzed. He took a piss in the solution, says Alan. We went to Anfield. They didn't want to see any test at all. Nothing. So what's it all about then, he says. No one asked me to wear a mask. Loads of people were uh, donning. Uh, loads of people were doing announcements, asking people to wear masks. That's insanity, isn't it? You're, you're at an outdoor football match. You're in a stadium, but you're outdoors. People asking you to wear masks, eh? Hi to Alice, who says, On post, have 1,000 staff off due to testing positive. That's the Irish Postal Service. Thanks for that, Alice. It's madness. And how many of them will be even sneezing, eh? Eh? How many? But Patricia, thanks so much for your message. Um, she says, today on Twitter, popped in the search bar. I popped in the search bar. I wrote in the search bar. I am an ICU consultant. Or I am a nurse. I am a radiologist. I am a doctor. Or I am a scientist, etc. If you do that, you will find a coordinated campaign likely from the government or the NHS. She says, you will see, they're all saying the same thing, pushing the jabs, yet they never answer any replies to their ugly, emotionally charged tweets. They're coercing people to take this mRNA experimental therapy. They set up the tweet. They sit back and watch anger, division and hatred all over the tweet. And then strangely, many, many trolls start attacking anyone who argues with the nurse or the doctor. This is a deliberate entrapment, says Patricia. And I wonder, are they all being paid to set this up? I don't know. I don't know. But I understand exactly what you're saying. And I've seen it happen. 
on social media myself. Martin is in the Costa Blanca in Spain. How are you doing, Martin? Hi to Joe Public. Hi to Dell. Who asks about mass formation psychosis. Very interested in it, Dell. I've spoken about it in various ways, in different ways over the years with various guests. How it happens that, that so many people flock in the one direction, even though it's obvious to some of us that the direction they're running in is going to take them off the edge of a cliff. It's it's fascinating theory. We will talk about it again on the programme. Hi to Linda, to Patrick, to Chris Morell, to David, to Joanne. It's time for a tune, and then we're off to Portugal. I'm looking forward to that. A tune, I said. Come on, I know it's a Monday. Two minutes past six, it is the Richie Allen Show, live from Solver. This is Robbie Williams. Come on, hold my hand. You can see it in my... Robbie Williams and Feel on the Richie Allen Show. Did you see that pipsqueak Michael Gove, the Minister for Levelling Up? He's the Housing Secretary. You know Michael Gove, the squirrely, rodent-esque little pipsqueak, used to be married to Sarah Vine of the Daily Mail. He's not married to her anymore. The Egypt was trapped in a lift at the BBC this morning for 30 long minutes before going to do an interview with Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4. It tickled me, although I couldn't help wondering or wishing or thinking, where's Dennis Hopper when you need him, eh? Where's Dennis Hopper when you need him? Ah, yeah. Pop quiz, hot shot. Imagine Dennis Hopper and Michael Gove. Pop shit, pop, pop shit. Yeah, pop quiz hot shot. Right, we've got to get Jenny on the programme. I think we'll do that right now. If there's anything you'd like me to say to Jenny, richieallen.co.uk, top of the page, comment live. You know how to do that now, so please do it. Do it, do it, and do it now. It's uh, six and a half minutes past six o'clock, with you till seven. I'm with you Monday to Thursday, five o'clock to seven o'clock UK time. Uh, right through till the middle of April sometime. That's what I'm telling you now. Let's welcome Jenny back to the programme. This is um, delighted she's on. There's a lot of synchronicity around today. Um, Jenny has worked as an NHS nurse. She has even recruited nurses for the service and educated nurses overseas for the NHS. She's in private practice in Portugal. Spoke a couple of times late 2020, I think, and early 2021. Delighted to welcome her back to the programme. It's Nurse Jenny Lowe's. Jenny, welcome back. How are you? Hi, Richie. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. Well, I'm not great. I've got a bit of the lurgy, so apologies for how I sound. Yeah, but no, I'm I'm, I'm great, and it's genuinely great to have you back on the programme. There's a couple of things I want to ask you straight off the bat. We've plenty of time to chat. Have I, or people like me, in your opinion, have we underplayed the severity or the seriousness of COVID-19? Is it more serious an infection than, than maybe I've been led to believe or, 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 or that I've been you know, saying it is? What do you think? It's a very interesting question. And I think we have to look at it in two ways. One is um, what we have seen in our own reality. So if we think about um, in terms of our own friends and family, um, what, what we've seen in the last two years. And the other end is to have a look at hospitalizations and ICU admissions and deaths. But they're very difficult to, as you know, to fully analyze because of the way in which they're diagnosing a case. So we don't know the true uh, number of cases 
and we don't know the true severity either. But from obviously there has been patients in hospital, and I think there's eight thousand uh, patients in ICU at the moment in the UK, more or less. Um, but that's out of a population of how many? So when you think of it like that, there's 8,000 in intensive care. And there's probably several patients more on the wards that have also tested positive and are being treated as COVID. Um, in terms of ICU admissions, the the number of beds hasn't really changed since like July. There was a bit of a blip in January and then it stayed fairly low, actually. Um, so... No, I think there's 8,000 patients in hospital, 800 in ITU. Yeah, that's right. So 18,000 patients in hospital and 844 in ventilated beds. So when you think about ventilated beds as well, the definition of a COVID patient is someone that's had a positive test within 28 days or two days after admission. So that could encompass a lot of patients that aren't quite true COVID cases. Um, but having spoken to... Um, friends and ex-colleagues that are still working in ICU, they have had some very sick patients that have tested positive to SARS-CoV-2. And they've had the presentation that we've read about in the intensive care journal. So uh, they're the ones that are having like bilateral glass ground glass opacities on their lungs. They have a rapidly fast deterioration in oxygen levels. Um, and it appears that it's much more of a vascular problem than it is actually a ventilation problem as such. So it's more of a perfusion problem than a ventilation problem. So it's very hard to know the exact true cases of those that we've had in intensive care and how many, as we've talked about this for the last two years, is how many of those have actually died of COVID-19. How many were had underlying conditions? How many were admitted with something else? So it's very hard to get a true handle on whether or not we're saying that it is like desperately, desperately severe. And, you know, you're not getting whole families being admitted into intensive care or whole families getting really sick. It very much is dependent on how well and um, the person is and how well metabolically they are and how their immune health is as to how they react. Why is that relevant, are. Jenny? That, that's what you just said there has really fascinated me. So we're not seeing whole families end up in hospital with it. Why is that relevant? Is that something that might have happened historically during a very bad flu season? Would you see, you know, members of the same family going to hospital or getting very sick at the same time? Uh, well, yes, I guess in some other pandemics with some other diseases that have a really high transmissibility and probably more of a severity. Um, but that's all looking into the germ and the terrain theory. And, you know, the terrain is everything, really, is what they say. Um, the germ has an impact also, but the terrain is everything. So people's underlying conditions and ability to be able to fight an infection um, will obviously put them in hospital or not, or they might just not even know, or they get very mild symptoms. So um, what I'm saying about the severity is the way in which we've been told that SARS-CoV-2 is this massively highly transmissible, dangerous disease that will, you know, all these people in ITU and things like that, that hasn't really happened, has it? You know, so no. if it was as transmissible and if it was as severe as they've been saying, we would know by now 
families that have all come down because they they live in the same way so you would imagine that maybe metabolically and sort of immune health wise they are of a similar on a similar page drinking the same water breathing the same same, eating the same food living the same same environment and levels of stress and everything so i'm not saying that that's what's happened in previous pandemics but what i'm saying is the way in which they sold it to us you would imagine that anybody that was with anybody that got sick you would also get sick, but that hasn't happened. And uh, I've actually had this experience in my own um, environment is that my partner uh, was quite sick a few months ago and we had some lateral flow tests in the house that my mum had brought over that the NHS had been giving away. And um, he he's not vaccinated and nobody else is in the house. And he'd gone to exercise in a very small boxing gym where most of the people there were vaccinated. And he literally the next day, he was really quite unwell and uh, had a very high temperature anyway. We tested his um, on the lateral flow. It was going straight in the bin and he didn't stick it up his nose. He just licked it, uh, just spat on it, sorry. And uh, it came up as a very strong positive. Now, if we hadn't have tested, I wouldn't have had any kind of inclination of whether it was COVID or not. Um, but he did lose his sense of taste and he did lose his sense of smell for a few weeks. But literally he had a high temperature for two days and he was better again as quick as it, it came. It just came and went very, very fast. Um, and I slept next to him and I looked after him for two days and I wasn't sick and my kids were here and they didn't get sick. So, you know, it's just when we're talking about the severity, I think it very much depends on how that person is when they are exposed to any let's call it a toxin, Uh, it depends on how your body will deal with that. So um, I think that there has been some very sick patients in intensive care with a presentation of a disease that's um, being labelled as SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And I think there's been lots of cases of people dying with a positive test that actually doesn't really mean that much. Doesn't mean Uh, much. So, Sorry, Jenny. So so the figure of 150,000, which I think they are claiming, by they I mean the UK government is claiming, that threshold was passed earlier, um, not earlier this week, but over the weekend, that, uh, look, you're, we're talking to Jenny Lowe's, by the way, who's not just a nurse and a qualified nurse, very, very, very intelligent and a terrific researcher. And she's really worth listening to here. So my opinion, I suppose, doesn't really mean anything right now, but just, for, you know, for, for the listener's point of view, I think 150,000 is incredible. Uh, when I say incredible, I mean it's not credible. It's completely not credible. And I go back to last year, Oxford University, uh, um, and and I do believe University College London said something along the lines you just said there, Jenny, said that too many people who were in hospital with very severe illnesses, that it, nothing to do with respiratory um, viruses, but um, were tested while in hospital, came back positive, they then died of whatever it was they were battling, and they were listed as a COVID debt. So how how wrong, if you think 150,000 might be wrong, how wrong might it be, Jenny? Uh, well, I think I looked today and haven't they done something like 8 million tests in the last seven days? So if you work on a percentage of inaccuracy and whatever the false positive is, um, and that I've read lots of different series on that of how high the false positive is. But I also know that we did test uh, one of the tests that we are kicking about. We tested it with orange juice and that came up positive. So I've done that in my in front of myself. And I know that things are showing up as positive um, when obviously clearly an orange juice can't be positive to 
um, SARS-CoV-2. So I don't know what the degree of inaccuracy is, but I imagine it's pretty high, especially if most of those people didn't have symptoms. Um, you know, if they, if, I doubt that 150,000 of those positive tests were symptomatic people. In fact, I think, you know, even from last year, they were saying that 85% of the PCR tests that are being done are on, are asymptomatic. So, you know, they they must have to multiply uh, the threshold so high to try and extract a positive. And whether that positive can be showing up other respiratory viral um, pathogens, I don't know, because I've seen... Um, a friend of mine recently, she got some saliva tests because uh, her son wants to be in, take part in society here. And now you have to either be vaccinated or take tests to get in everywhere. So she bought him some saliva ones. And on the insert of the packet, it must have had about 20 different uh, pathogens that it would test positive for. But obviously, you just get a positive line. It doesn't tell you doesn't which tell pathogen you yeah. it's for. And I've seen that in, uh, other people suggest, I've seen results that have come out that um, they'll have um, coronavirus positive highlighted, but being a list of all pathogens and SARS-CoV-2 is not positive, but it's for coronavirus. So, you know, there's been these discussions for the last two years as to whether the PCR tests are truly picking up true positive cases or not. And uh, I would say that it's not, although I don't know about you, but I have known that in the last few weeks, probably the last six weeks, there's been a lot of people not very well. And either they are people that have not tested, um, have not bothered to test, but they've been sick with symptoms or they've tested and they've tested positive. Um, but there does seem to have been a bit more illness around in the last six weeks, which is normal. Uh, being winter, you know. Could it be flu? It's funny you say that. The my my better half is a Stepford wife, uh, Jenny. She's a Stepford wife. <laughs> no, well, she we we've been together twenty years, and I think on two occasions she's been unwell. She's ridiculously healthy. Um, but thank God she's fabulously healthy. She's smothering at the moment as. Am I? I'm not crying about it. I'm not in any discomfort, but I've got the mucus on the chest and all of that nonsense. Could it, so? Could it just be flu then that people have at the moment, or is flu gone? Has, uh, has flu, flu disappeared. Colds could be all manner of things, really. You know, the weather's been very changeable everywhere. I think the last um, few months um, is getting colder. We're not getting as much vitamin D from the sun, you know, and everybody's been on like a high alert for the last two years. So. I don't think it's done a lot of our adaptive uh, <laughs> immune system very good, really, because we've been running on adrenaline a lot. Lots of people have had high cortisol. You know that we're not in a good space to be battling any kind of illness at the moment. So uh, there definitely has been a lot of sickness around in my circle. But I don't know if it's any more than a normal year. It's just that people are much more happy to tell you that they haven't been very well. Fair enough. I'd like to do something now, if you don't mind. Um, because we've loads to get through between now and the top of the hour. I obviously want to ask you about what some of your friends here in the UK, some of your, your, your former teammates and colleagues are facing in April, which is losing their job because they don't want to be jabbed. Uh, I definitely want to talk to you about that because you were kind of uncannily accurate in predicting some of the way this has gone. The last time we spoke, which I think was either March or April, last year and m much of what you said was going to happen has happened to your absolute credit. Jenny is a former NHS nurse 
uh, did a lot for the NHS, recruited nurses, trained them, educated them on behalf of the NHS. She's in private practice in Portugal, very, very bright, knows what she's talking about. I'm not buttering her up. She does. Let, 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 let give you a couple of quick fire ones, if you don't mind, because m- my listeners will kill me if I don't. Okay. They tell me, they scream at me, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 was never isolated. Uh, it never has been, Richie, they say. So why do you keep acting as if it's genuine? I work on the basis that I think it is genuine, but what do I know? Uh, I, I like every position, every opinion to be reflected on this programme. Do some of them have a point when they say it's not been isolated? Uh, yes, I think it's one of those very grey areas that hasn't been addressed properly. And I don't know if it's just... Um, an extra way of trying to confuse people and get people off the main point. And the main point is what's happening right in front of us and that people's, you know, autonomous choices are being trampled all over and you know, we're entering tyranny and people seem to have their eyes closed. I don't know if the argument is about whether uh, SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated or not, although it does have a lot of validity. Uh, because there are scientists and so- saying that they have isolated it, and then I'm hearing other people saying that it's not been isolated at all. I've read all about, you know, germ versus terrain theory and the different concepts about what flus and colds actually are and whether that's just a detox process that we go through. And, you know, it's been a bit of a steep learning curve for me the last couple of years, undoing what I think I've, I'd always known. Um and I think there's a lot in modern medicine that hasn't been fully explained because it very much supports the pharmacological method um, of management. Um, but usually, say, for example, if we was working in a hospital and you have a very sick patient that comes in with a community acquired pneumonia, you'd want to run a urine test and a nasal and throat swab to see what the underlying pathogen was. So you can test for influenza um, and there's other uh, community acquired pneumonia pathogens that we test for. Um, So what they do with them obviously is they use a Petri dish, they culture and then they see the pathogen growing and they can identify that that's the pathogen. Um, But you know, lots of people say that viruses are exomes, that they're not contagious. Uh, All I know is that I've got kids and, you know, I've lived with other people all my life that when one person gets sick, usually somebody we else gets get sick it. too. Yeah, yeah, right. But again, we could go back to what we were saying before is that we're just living in the same environment, eating the same food. So, you know, more or less our response is the same. Can you hear so that I, standing ovation, by the way? Can you hear the standing ovation in the background? That's, <laughs> that's, that's my listeners because I'm, uh, I'm a subscriber to germ theory. Now, you have to take that with a massive pinch of salt because I don't know my arse from my elbow. I know nothing about medicine. You're the expert. But when I say I'm a subscriber to germ theory, if you said, Richie, put your last £5 note on one being true and one being false, I'd have a punt on germ theory. But I'm beginning to think otherwise. The the round of applause you're hearing in the background is because most of my listeners, at least the ones who, who, who take the time to message me, they are proponents of terrain theory. Yeah. So they're going to love listening to you now. And they're going to be, I see, Richie, you see? Jenny agrees with us. So yeah, so you think that it's not just because we're breathing the same air and spreading germs all over one another. It's because we're in the same environment, drinking the same water, eating the same food. Yeah, okay. I think there's a bit of both. I think there, the theory is obviously that the, the terrain theory is that germs are exos, so that they're not 
communicable. So you can't pass from one person to the, to another. But the way I understand it, or the best way I can understand it, is that um, that exome is a toxin which tick kicks off a detox response in another person. That's the way I have tried to understand it. But there's still some, I still have some doubts about pure terrain theory. Um, and there, I, I wonder if it is a bit of a mixture. Um, and obviously, we don't know exactly where this SARS-CoV-2 apparently originated from. Um, we don't know that much about it, really, to be honest with you. That There was a lot of questions about the genetic code having been um, was strange and that it looked like it had some HIV protein spliced into it. And I, I read that like back in February 2020. And we still haven't really come that much further. Um, but I do have some other theories about why people are getting sick. And I don't know if it is truly because of SARS-CoV-2 um, or not, if that makes sense. Do you want to expand on that before I put some more quickfire, not, not too many quickfire questions? Well, it does, it does kind of lead into the terrain theory a little bit. So we are completely surrounded by electrosmog in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. And we live in a permanently switched on planet, basically. And we don't, our nervous system doesn't get any rest from that. So there's a lot of evidence that electromagnetic fields are biologically harmful. And I absolutely agree that they are. And I've read hundreds of pieces of research about uh, current cellular technology, 5G, uh, Wi-Fi routers, smart technology, Bluetooth. I've read lots and lots of research about different frequencies um, and I believe that we are essentially electromagnetic beings. Um, so there's that. Then there's obviously, like you said, there's water quality. Are we drinking water that is healthy for us, like from the tap? Um, I would suggest that, you know, it doesn't quite have what we need uh, in terms of mineral balance. And then it has loads of chemicals and everything to treat it on top of that. The food we eat, there are not many people that are eating a good diet lots of people will say yeah yeah my diet's good but actually there are lots of people that uh, are not um there are lots of people that are deficient in vitamin d and we've been at a grand solar minimum um that kind of came to its bottom in 2019 which means that um you utilize less vitamin d from the sun so also we're in winter. Anybody that lives over 35 degrees north latitude doesn't utilize much vitamin D from the sun in winter. So uh, anybody in nursing homes, shift workers, people that don't get outside much in the summer, their vitamin D levels are probably very depleted. Um, melatonin as well is another one that I'm seeing in my practice is that lots of people have got massively depleted melatonin levels. And that could be related to gut health. Um, it can be related to the fact that we spend so much time on screens with the blue lights and the artificial LED lights. Um, and I think that the, the electromagnetic environment is changing naturally and also man-made as well. So there are lots and lots of contributing factors to why people are ill. Um, there are some theories that these corona mass ejections from the sun and... Um, solar radiation can cause mutations in viruses that we already have in our DNA. And that can cause new variants of disease. And that's what's making people sick. So there are lots of things that haven't been discussed at all in like the public sphere. 
as to why people are so susceptible and why people are so uh, have been ill. And there, there has been excess deaths. And particularly in 2021, with the vaccine rollout, there's been even more excess deaths. I'm not saying it's linked. I'm just saying that, you know, if the vaccine had been sold, that it was our saviour, we shouldn't be seeing more excess deaths this year than we were seeing last. So uh, heliobiology is a really interesting area of, it's quite a new area of research about how um, the geomagnetic and cosmos conditions and solar radiation actually affect us as humans. And, uh, you know, during these solar storms, there is a lot of evidence that people um, have like almost like radiation poisoning symptoms. So usually starts with diarrhea um, and then it can be up to three weeks later that people get other symptoms, which is essentially like a detox symptoms of sore throat, runny nose, f uh, fever, fatigue. So, you know, I've covered a lot in that, that small space, but I think there's there's lots of other contributory factors that are not being talked about. And I think the germ versus terrain theory needs a really good debate. It needs to be debated right down to the final point. Um, Which we're not going to see, though. This is the, We're not going to see that debate. We might do in the independent media, but we're certainly not going to see it through the UK or, or Portuguese media. I want to mention an article in yesterday's Sunday Times, which you may have come across, I'm not sure, um, but it's right up your street anyway. It's about how eating processed food, and a lot of people eat processed food, a lot of people eat takeaway food, uh, many people eat takeaway food constantly, maybe three, four times a week. And um, scientists at the Francis Crick Institute in London are saying that Eating processed food is having a problem with, it's causing a problem with good essential bacteria in the gut, which you've talked about today and you've talked about with me before, and that that's causing autoimmune problems in people. And just in case people don't know what an autoimmune disorder is, it's one in which uh, the body attacks its own organs and tissue. And autoimmune, autoimmune problems have been on the rise in people for some time. Really, really good article in the Times yesterday. Sadly, it's a subscription site, but um, you, you might want to have a look at that if you haven't seen it, and our listeners as well. That won't surprise you at all, Jenny. No, absolutely. So, you know, most of what we practice in integrative health is that everything starts in the gut. And, you know, our, our gut has more of an active nervous system than our brain does. And our bacteria work synergistically with us to maintain a balance. And uh, most people, most people living in the Western world will have some kind of dysbiosis or imbalanced microbiome, which leaves you more susceptible to different infections. And also with autoimmune problems, it can cause all sorts of problems, um, can cause um, vitamin deficiencies, mineral deficiencies, which then lead on to symptoms, which then get diagnosed as a disease. Um, so really everything underlying uh, is in the gut. And even people who don't have symptoms, so, you know, someone will say to you, well, I have normal bowel movements and don't have any problems with my gut. Uh, even they can have a dysbiosis and not know. So like a, a, a good example of the gut is, say, for example, you've had an, a chest infection, you've had flu or the rona, and then you've had a chest infection, and they give you antibiotics for the chest infection, but it clears out all your beneficial bacteria in your gut. Um, and then Is that Candida, right, Jenny? Jenny, a thousand apologies for interrupting there, but I have to, 
because I would have taken a lot of antibiotics over the years, but not for the last 10 years. You've shocked me there now. So you get an antibiotic for the, ch- excuse me, the chest infection you have, and that does kill the good bacteria too. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to kill all of it, but it obviously depends on how much yeah. of a, a reserve that you've got. And the theory is, is that your appendix and your cecum are actually hot in your intestines. They hold like a battalion army back, uh, waiting for if there is a change. Because say you might have a, a stomach bug or something like that, or food poisoning, and then it repopulates your good bacteria. But if you've got an overgrowth, say, candida, or it's a yeast, candida is a yeast, um, lots of people know about candida and, and yeast and thrush symptoms. Um, often people get thrush or many times people get thrush after having antibiotics. And that's because um, your beneficial bacteria have been wiped out a bit and the candida is quite strong and it will take over and then you can start getting symptoms. And you might not get symptoms that are really obvious. You might just have a bit of athlete's foot or a bit of a white tongue then you've probably got a bit of candida overgrowth there and that could cause all sorts of problems. It can even drive you to certain food choices because candida loves sugar. And it, this is why, you know, the modern diet feeds the, the non-beneficial bacteria more because candida loves sugar. And it actually, they think that when you have an overgrowth of candida, you're more likely to have like carbohydrate and sugar cravings because your gut is driving you to do it. So really the microbes are in charge. You know, we've got uh, 95% more microbial DNA in us than we have human DNA. So it's, you know, our virus, our virome and our microbiome is very, very important. And it's something that doesn't get even, you know, the tiniest bit of attention really, Uh, especially in the modern medicine world. They don't really consider um, probiotics and the importance of gut health that much. Definitely not in hospital. And is the answer obvious? Is it because policy is driven by pharmaceutical company lobbying and to discuss what you've been discussing, you're really talking about genuine treatment and genuine healing. To go down that road means basically the end of the pharmaceutical cartels, doesn't it? It would do, ultimately. Well, it does, but they could capitalise on it. You know, they could uh, at least make money out of it, I suppose. But Because they're not cheap. Like, if you want to buy yourself the right probiotics and do testing, it's not cheap um, to do it. Because a lot of it's not available. Even if you went to, say, if you had ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and you went to a specialist, you probably wouldn't get, you know, even a part of the tests that we can do in functional medicine um, and apply to be able to see what's really going on in your gut microbiome. Because a lot of people don't know what's what's happening there. And probiotics, the, the science on probiotics is changing all the time. They're getting more and more information all the time. Um, and that science is definitely progressing. But I asked an infection control microbiologist actually was, um, it must have been 20 years ago, why we didn't give probiotics to patients that are in hospital with Clostridium difficile, uh, which is a terrible illness for people that they can develop after they've had antibiotics. Um, and it's a really nasty inflammatory bowel uh, disorder, and it, is, it hasn't got a very good um, survival rate. And it, it's horrible. It often affects the elderly. And they get very malnourished. Anyway, um, and I asked him and he said that there wasn't enough evidence for it. Um, so 
you know, that just doesn't get pushed down from the top as an initiative. So unless you've got a really forward thinking doctor or healthcare professional um, within the NHS, you're probably not going to get that information. You're not going to know. And you're certainly not going to read it in the Times or the Telegraph. Uh, Jenny Lowe's is our guest. Jenny's in Portugal, a vastly experienced nurse, worked for the NHS in, in, in many areas, recruiting and educating overseas nurses. She's in private practice in Portugal, uh, very interested in integrative medicine. It's brilliant to have Jenny on. Here's a couple of quick questions before we talk about the mandating of the jab. Craig asks an excellent question on, on, on the website. He says, Richie, would you ask Jenny, does she think there might be a link, is there a link between the flu and COVID jabs and spikes in illness? After all, says Craig, do not the vaccinations inject, don't the, vaccina- don't the vaccinations inject the infection source into people in an allegedly controlled way? Is there a link between uh- flu COVID injections and spikes in illness because the jabs inject the infection source into people in an allegedly controlled way? Well, only the the flu virus has any um, attenuated virus in it. The COVID vaccine is obviously something completely different. It's not the whole virus. They're not injecting the whole virus in the COVID vaccines. They're just injecting the spike or they're using the mRNA as a messenger to produce the antibodies to a fictional spike. Um, so, but I do think there is, there could possibly be a link, but it would be very hard to prove between the w- people that got vaccinated at the end of, um, or the, the autumn of 2019, if they were more susceptible. And I think I've read a couple of pieces of research that suggest there may be an increased susceptibility. Um, but whether that's just because the person's immune system, um, I mean, the people that promote vaccines will say that your immune system could cope with a thousand vaccines at the same time. But I don't buy that. Um, You know, they give kids sometimes six vaccines or eight vaccines on the same day. And I remember asking a doctor and he said, oh, no, you can give uh, hundreds of vaccines on the same day. Your immune system can cope. It's meant to cope. But obviously it's not meant to cope (laughs) with that many injections in one day. Um, So there is there is some link, I think between susceptibility, but then the people that have the flu vaccine tend to be older and vulnerable anyway. And uh, we know that I think it was the 2018 flu vaccine was only supposedly like 20% effective at preventing flu anyway. So um, I don't know if there is for sure a very clear link, but I think there probably is if you look hard enough. Worth exploring, yeah. I think historically, from what I've read, the flu jab has worked 7% of the time historically. That's across the world, which is absolutely incredible. Let's talk about, um, well, today, the, the Times, and I wrote about this on my own website, one hospital, one trust, King's College Hospital, is saying that we're going to lose a thousand workers if the vaccine mandate, which the government has said, I mean, they've said it's going to happen. It it, it got through Parliament from April. If you are working with patients on the so-called front line, the, the fictional front line, and I'm not being disrespectful, Jenny, now to you as a nurse or anybody else. I genuinely believe that nurses and doctors do, do, do great work. I've been lucky enough over the years to have been cared for when I've been very sick by people who know what they're doing. So I have great respect, but I don't buy this front line bollocks. I think it's jingoistic nonsense that's designed to, to, to scare people, you know, to make them terrified of this, of this virus. But look, um, they said we, we might lose a thousand workers 
Now we did speak. The, I think the very first time we spoke, I mean, you predicted this. You predicted it would be mandated um, for for NHS staff. It has been, and I know you know people, former friends, and well, not former friends, former colleagues, friends of yours that are are here, that are, are working in the NHS. Um, what's the mood like? As I mean, we're, what are we now? January tenth. We're we're only twelve weeks away, really, um, and we're not even twelve weeks away because for people to be jabbed, the ones who haven't had a jab yet they will need to have the first dose pretty soon, won't they? Or reasonably soon. Um, what's the mood like as far as you know, speaking to your colleagues back home? Well, I think most people have already had the vaccine. Um, I know that work in healthcare. I, I do know a few that have withheld and not had had it. Um, but I think the the theme amongst the nurses is that they don't agree that it should be made mandatory because I think they're starting to become quite aware now that this might be a six monthly requirement or even less. Um, so they know that even if they've complied and they've had the two or even if they've had the booster, they're not comfortable with the fact that it being mandated because it's not clear when that will continue to or what that will entail and then will it mean that they will also mandate the other flu vac uh, the other vaccines like the flu vaccine because at the moment the flu vaccine is not mandatory and has never been mandatory um so i think there's a lot of growing discontent i think that um people are rightly angry at the health service right now but i know that the people that I know are still continuing to work hard under very difficult conditions. And I'm not excusing any poor care or, you know, some awful policies that they've put in place that have been devastating for patients and relatives. Um, but, you know, there are some good people that are still working hard. Um, they've had extra problems with sickness. Obviously, the sickness rate has gone through the roof. Uh, they haven't helped that by telling people that they can self-certify for 28 days. You know, there's lots of people on isolation. Um, so the health service, no doubt about it, is under a lot of pressure, but it's not COVID related. Um, and they have shut beds and they've moved people around. Um, what was the direct question again? <laughs> uh, no, how are they feeling? Yeah, how are um, they feeling? You, you make the point that most have taken it and, and that correlates with government data, if we believe it. I, I do tend to believe that most of them will have been pressured into taking it, and, and, I, and I, I think you're probably right. But there the remains about, is it is about 1%, is it? Somewhere between 1% and 3% who do work with patients who haven't had it. I think and, it's a lot more than that. Do you think it's more than that, yeah? Yeah, I think it is. And I think quite a big majority of those will probably be doctors, because doctors' uptake for the flu vaccine is the lowest out of all the... Uh, Healthcare professionals. Why? So I think a big number, they're saying 100,000 are going to leave the NHS. I don't know how many of those are patient facing roles, but um, I'll give you an example of a paramedic that I know that doesn't want the vaccine. She's had COVID um, or she tested positive for COVID and she wasn't very well for about a week. She's worked all through the pandemic. Um, she's been given notice about having the vaccine. She's tried to get an exemption because she's got quite a lot of allergies and she just doesn't want it. And um, so she's still holding firm at the moment. Um, she's someone I know per personally very well. Um, and then I spoke to a friend the other day who's had both vaccines and the booster. She's a nurse friend that I qualified with. And she said there were six or seven in her department that had refused and that they were being hounded every day by management. 
Um, and I think you said that I predicted that it would be man mandated. I predicted that it was going to come, that they were going to, but I didn't believe that they would mandate it based on the very fact that the numbers are a fraud and based upon the fact that nursing and doctor, um, doctors, their profession is based upon an ethical code of conduct. And the biggest part of that ethical code of conduct is allowing people to make their own choices and respecting their own choices and also giving proper informed consent. And none of those things are happening. So how can nurses and doctors be asked to fulfill their code when their bodies are telling them that they have to take an injection that they don't want. And I think that's like, this is the, this is our fight. It's all of our fight. It's not just healthcare professionals, because if they do it for them first and they get away with it, then they'll do it for us too. Um, and it's obviously, I don't know if it's a carrot and stick and maybe they'll do a bit of a U-turn. I'm hoping that they will. And I wonder whether that's what a little bit about the Sajid uh, or see it, jab it thing was the other day where, was it Dr. James? Yeah, the anaesthetist, um, if I said yeah. that right. Yeah. Because everyone was saying, oh, why would they show that if there wasn't a reason? But I wonder if it's the start of a bit of a climb down because they're getting a lot of pressure. Um, but they're just making everybody's life miserable uh, yeah, to yeah. try and coerce them into doing it. And it's so wrong, so, so wrong. I mean, I, I have a few nurse um, followers on Twitter and... You know, some of their posts are heartbreaking. They feel like they're in a job that they absolutely adore and that they've always wanted to do that job and they've trained very hard for it. And but just by standing up for themselves, they might have to lose their job. But I think the advice is from the employment lawyers is to do not resign and uh, just keep continuing to get things in writing. And also the, the trust need to be asked where their liability lies, like who is going to um cover their issues if there is any do you know what i mean and that's what people really need to be doing there's some good people to follow on twitter uh, pj law has quite a lot of uh, info on their doctors for covid ethics they have quite a lot of information um but you know if they get away with doing this with the health professionals then i think they'll probably then try and mandate it for us but i'm hoping the way I see it, Richie, is that this plan was meant to extend over a longer period of time and, um, you know, up to 2025, which all the documentation, um, Agenda 21, Agenda 30, everything takes us up to 2025. Um, but I think they've been forced to speed up. So I think probably the original plan was that everybody got a yearly, boost, a yearly vaccine like the flu. Um, and there wouldn't be too much resistance to it because they wouldn't have to force anybody. It'd be kind of, but people would go along with it. But because they've had to like push their plans, they seem a bit desperate to me. Like they're, you know, this constant get boosted, get vaccinated, constantly being contacted by people, uh, virtue signaling everywhere. It, it just never ends. And yeah. the more they push, the more people push back. And I think that their plans are unraveling and the the kind of collective consciousness is shifting towards, you know, we are autonomous beings and we do have a right to make informed choices and we do have a right to have information and unbiased information. And it's like everything's collapsing around them. I think that's the positive thing that I feel more than last year. That's really, uh, I, 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 I've got a smile on my face because it's not that I don't 
see it like you. I haven't really given it much thought. I, I did say on another program yesterday that I thought the things might ease off a little bit because they couldn't continue with the pressure for, for the reasons you just outlined there. And I thought, well, that's positive, but, but you know, it'll come back eventually. What you've done is given me a bit more hope, really, in saying that maybe the, the, this relentless squeezing of people is inadvertently alerting more people to the fact that something is gravely wrong with, uh, with, with what is happening. And if that's right, well, you know, Jesus, that's, that's, that, that'll be, that, that can't be anything but positive. My, my pal Spiro Skouras, who's a journalist in America, he said, he's been listening to this, and he says, Richie, let Jenny know, she may or may not know, but the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in America, her name is uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's yeah. admitted, this woman, today, and he sent me the clip, but I can't play it now because I've, I've got to use another system to download it, uh, and I don't have time. But she's acknowledged that 75% of COVID deaths in America occurred in people with at least four comorbidities. Yeah. Well, in December 2020, that number was 6%. So they, they released that bombshell. That was in December 2020. They were lying. No, yeah. no, not 20. Yeah, December 2020. God, it seems like it's gone on for so long. Yeah, it's been forever. Yeah, um, that, yeah there was 6%. And I think it's probably, that is actually probably more of an accurate figure of the 6% have been those true cases that I talked about at the beginning where people rapidly drop their oxygen levels and uh, ventilation, they don't do well on ventilation and everything else. They're the true, true cases. Um, and whether they're caused by SARS-CoV-2, I'm not, I still don't know. Um, but yeah, definitely. The, I mean, I know personally someone, it's the only person I actually know that's died of COVID, but he, was, he had dementia and he had aspiration pneumonia because he couldn't swallow. And he was already in hospital like a month and caught COVID in hospital. And he was put down as a COVID death. Um, so I know that that's been going on. Um, and when you look at the ITU numbers, I think it's the ITU numbers that, well, they're still a bit shady, actually, because, you know, it's within 28 days of a positive test. So it's very difficult to unpick. And I think this ball of confusion is on purpose so that we can't see any way out of it. Simple you know, as I, that. Like I said, I'm a lot more positive than I was last year or or even at the end of December 2019 when the news came out about the virus in Wuhan, because... Um, I could, I'd seen that coming. Like I, I knew that something was coming. And a friend of mine had said, this is a bit esoteric, but a friend of mine had said that astrologically in 2020, something was coming that would change the world. And she said that to me years ago. She said, I don't know what it is yet, but something, the planets are aligning that something huge is going to happen. And I always had that in my head. And then I'd watched event 201 and I'd looked at, um, Agenda 21, Agenda 30, I'd gone down the 5G rabbit hole already. This was before COVID. And so when it broke, I was quite anxious that this was really going to take hold and everybody was asleep. It was like, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, more and more people started to, obviously there were people that have always known that something big was going to come um, and they could see it laid out in all the plans. But, you know, whether it's been a natural or man-made thing, I don't know, but this was always written in the stars. And I think that what's happened is um, they've tried to keep everybody in fear and vibrating on a low energy and really inward so that we're not seeing the bigger picture of how things can change. And actually, if you look at this with a magnifying glass, you can see that 
farmers been exposed, the governments have been massively exposed, um, the legal services, the police, the you know, there's been so many things that have had the spotlight on them that's wrong with our society. And maybe, just maybe, out of this, something positive can come. But if we go back to the mandatory vaccination thing, <laughs> um, I think everybody that's with, withholding needs to continue to withhold and not cave because I know people that have caved and had the vaccine and they've really struggled mentally afterwards because it went totally against what they believed in. And I think that's worse. Um, and just hold your ground and get legal advice, good legal advice, and um, keep asking your trust and your employers about liability, like what happens, because we know that the manufacturer is not um, liable. We know that the government's kind of made themselves not liable because they said that basically they can do anything because it's a pandemic. When does that get called anyway for renewal? Is it March? The Coronavirus Act. Do you know when that comes up for it, review? It is March. This this Plan B nonsense is reviewed on January 28th. But yes, the Act um, is will, will be reviewed. Yeah, I think it is in March. That's right. Um, it's interesting you, you bring that up because backbenchers have allegedly been threatening Johnson that this ends on January 28th and we go right back to living you know, normally, the way the, the way we did pre-pandemic. Uh, and if we don't, that he's basically done for. There's a hundred now, there, there's maybe more since Christmas. Uh, backbench Tory MPs have had enough of this. So that's going to be very interesting. But you're right, March for the Act itself, for the powers given, taken from the, yeah, from the Coronavirus Act of, of 2020, yeah. And I think any staff that's held their ground over this has been amazing and they deserve a really big pat on the back because it can't be easy. It really can't be easy trying to withhold and being hounded all the time and, you know, being put pressure on by your colleagues and things like that. It can't have been easy. Um, but I do think that we need to get behind our health staff a little bit and uh, support them in in making sure that they know that even if it means that they lose their jobs, there's a new consciousness evolving that wants a change in the medical model and they want they want things to change because the way I'm not bashing the medical service I worked in for a long, long time and the hospitals do do good things. Um, and if you broke a leg, that's the place that you'd want to go. But 90 to 95% of illnesses and diseases are preventable and we don't focus hardly any funding or... Um, uh, funds towards uh, preventative medicine, really. Can we, I stop you there? I'll tell you why I'm stopping you there. We agreed last March or April, whenever it was, we would do a, a proper show on that because this is an area of research that you have um, followed and studied and you know a lot about it. And we said we'd do something, it never happened. Um, let's let's do that. But let's do it soon, not not in three or four months down the line. Let's do it towards the end of January or at the latest early February. Let's do a good long show talking about that very subject because okay. that's really massively important now. Let's yeah. let's do that because we're, we're we're basically out of time uh, now. But um, Jenny, we're, I, I know you're on Twitter. What's the Twitter handle? Um, it's at, at one mirror. No, hang on. What is it? It's at Jenny Espelu. 
Um, no, you're right the first time. It, that rings a bell. It's at one at mirror. At one mirror, 1978, I think it is. At that one mirror. Check. Yeah, the number one mirror, 1978. Um, so follow Jenny on there. Look, uh, if you go, if you get a chance later on, go to my website. Go to Comment Live. Um, there are dozens and dozens of comments about what you've said and also questions and they're really interesting I'm, I'm not saying go on the website and answer these God no don't do that you'll be there till <laughs> Christmas no no but it'll give you an idea of what we can talk about next time you come on because we will talk about prevention which never gets a look in uh, at all so let's do that but it's just been brilliant to catch up with you again really kind of synchronistic today because I wasn't planning on having a guest and as God is my witness when I, when I read the Sunday Times article yesterday, it uh, made me think of you immediately about the um, about gut bacteria. I thought, I must get in touch with Jenny. Lo and behold, I went on Skype today and I had a Happy New Year message uh, from, from Nurse Jenny. And I thought, Jesus, wow. So uh, that's why you're here today, but I'm so glad you came back on. Is there anything you want to say in the last uh, 30, 40 seconds we have before we wrap it up today, Jenny? Anything that you maybe wanted to say, but you didn't get a chance to say it? Uh, no, I think that just that we all have to try and ma- remain as positive as possible. And where our energy goes, we have to be careful where that directs us. Because I've been some very down some very deep, dark rabbit holes in the last few years, and I think that a lots of people have. Um, but I do see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel starting to emerge, and there is definitely many, many more people now than there was two years ago that are questioning things, which can only be a good thing. Um, and I, I think that we've just got to keep sharing information, keep trying to counter this ridiculous, awful narrative that they're shoving down our throats all the time, like the one today with the I am consultant and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just try and balance the uh, playing field a little bit. And also, you know, I think that there is going to be more and more people waking up in the coming months and there'll probably be some truths that are being revealed. This is what I expect. Um um, so there are going to be some people that are going to find that quite difficult and uh, we need to, you know, remain kind and patient and <laughs> compassionate, I think, because it's been a really rough two years on everybody. I don't think there's really anybody that's been untouched by it, to be honest. No, uh, here, here. Look, we'll leave it there because I'm just about to run out of time. Jenny, thanks for that and for those words at the end. And uh, look, I'll be in touch with you no later then mid-morning tomorrow and we'll arrange to do something towards the end Perfect. of this month late, latest early February Jenny thanks so much lovely to have you on again get well soon Richie I hope you feel better thanks Jenny okay. really appreciate that bye for now the brilliant Jenny Lowe's Nurse Jenny live in Portugal this evening on the Richie Allen Show uh, great to have Jenny back on thanks for all the comments as well by the way and thanks so much to Hayden Hewitt for getting the website back up and running at the speed of light today thank you Hayden guitar god I've been Richie Allen. Celeste Solemn is amongst the guests on Tuesday's programme. I'm looking forward to catching up with Celeste tomorrow. It's been a year, 18 months since she was on the programme. In the meantime, you enjoy the rest of your Monday. Thanks for finding me again. It's great to be back. It really is. I'm thrilled to be back. Speak tomorrow at five. Take care of yourselves and one another. All the best. Bye. Bye.